Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Very glad to have all of you with us today for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We, what, again, again, we come to the end of a week, and I say what an incredible week in politics. It has been, as most of you already know. We're going to talk about a lot of what happened this week. Before I introduce the panel, I just want to make a quick mention about our show um, with Andrew Young. Um, many of you heard uh, that Andy Young was with us for an hour on the show yesterday. And as always, when you have Andy Young in the studio, he goes off in a lot of directions, and it's a lot of fun. We always enjoy hearing what he has to say. I do want to point one thing out. At, at very near the end of the show, he said that um, he had been advised by people who were following coronavirus very closely, <coughs> excuse me, Drinking hot water was a way of uh, eliminating the virus, <coughs> excuse me, from your system. Um, we've seen no evidence that that's the case. So my suggestion is I'm going to take a drink of water right now. My suggestion is that um, you may want to take other preventative steps. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 don't touch your face. Don't touch your face. Uh, uh, if you feel bad. Don't come to work. Yeah. We're going to talk about all that. Uh, and I apologize. I've got something caught in my throat right now. Jim Galloway is with us. He's the lead political writer, of course, for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper. And uh, he oversees the political uh, it, insider blog, uh, The Jolt being one of his real uh, focuses of attention, where every morning you get lots of information about what's happening in politics here and <clears throat> nationally as well. Um, thanks for being here. You gave us a great story to talk about with Andy yesterday. We're going to talk about it even more oh, today. Mm -hmm. The number of people who have voted early in this first week of voting in the presidential primary in Georgia, and we'll get to that in a little while. Right next to uh, Jim Galloway, Edward Lindsay. Edward was a former state rep, of course, a Republican from the city of Atlanta. He is now oversees government operations in the state of Georgia for Denton's, which is, Edward, <laughs> the world's largest law firm. Well, well thank you for that. I, I was unaware of that fact. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you but were. But I appreciate uh, you, you breaking the news, and, yeah. and I always enjoy being here. Yeah, thank we're glad me. to have you back. It's been a couple of weeks. You've yeah. been uh, busy yeah. with your work as a lawyer. Yes. Always gets in the way of talking about politics, that it sort does, of thing. It does, and I need to cut back on the, on, on the lawyer <laughs> yeah. stuff. Right. Um, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, Democrat from Decatur, back in the studio with us. Coming out of another week in the session, how are you no, holding we, up? Great. It's yeah. fun. It's you, fun. In a weird way, it's fun. Boy, we've had, <laughs> we've had a number of legislators in here. You're the first one that said they're having fun this session. Good for you. Thank you. <laughs> Glad to have you here. Thank and you. Patricia Murphy, who is covering the legislative session for GPB News. We see you on The Lawmakers now every night, and you continue to write your columns for Roll Call, which are syndicated. And um, how are you enjoying being down there? I'm also having fun. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, it's great. Good. All right. Um, speaking of the Capitol, we're going to talk about coronavirus at the start today. Uh, Mary Margaret Oliver brought in a little present that was dropped on the desks of every legislator, right? Um, yesterday hands, or the day before? Hand sanitizer from Emory with some instructions about how to stay healthy. Dear members of the General Assembly, hand hygiene is a cornerstone of infection uh, prevention. When soap and water is not available, use this hand sanitizer. And then it goes on to say the duration of hand washing or use of hand sanitizer should be the amount of time it takes to sing happy birthday twice. So everybody's saying this is the way to deal with the virus. It, uh, I, I will tell you, you are seeing more uh, hand sanitation stations sprout up in, in the Capitol. 
Uh, of course, if you go to the CVS or, or, or Walgreens, you're not seeing any of that stuff because people are buying it up. Yeah, you can't yeah. get it. It's gone from the shelves in the stores. Edward, you said right before the show went on the air, the thing about the cast state capital <laughs> during the legislative it's session. It's a petri it's dish. A petri dish. <laughs> and so if one person ever gets this virus, which is a very serious issue here in the state, don't want to make light of it. Everyone in that capital is going yeah. to get it because it's the, just you have people who are just so close together. Yeah. The, the corona elbow bump has yeah. become a thing. Yes, yeah. it is. a yeah. lot of fist bumping in Atlanta and also in D.C. And uh, Matt Gates, Congressman Matt Gates from Florida, when he voted on the eight point three billion dollar coronavirus emergency spending package, as a bit of gallows humor, wore his face mask <laughs> when he was talking about it. So Ugh. it's certainly on the mind of legislators <clears throat> yeah. who travel a lot or are in close contact with a lot of people they've never met before. Um, the uh, spending bill was pushed through very rapidly by both the House and the Senate. President Trump is expected to sign it today. Um, it's interesting to note, Jim, that the president, the White House initially asked for $2.5 billion, and they got a lot of pushback, a lot of criticism from both Democrats and Republicans on the Hill saying, you're not even beginning to deal with this issue. And the president said, fine. Tell me what you want, and they're going to get eight point three billion. Eight point three, and we'll probably see see another spending bill. Yeah, right. um, yeah. and and millions of it, Edward, is going to be distributed to states like Georgia in, in the efforts that are going on here and other places to fight the virus. Well, both on the federal and the state level. Uh, on the state level, obviously, it's going to be flowing into uh, our state government, uh, with the Department of Health, and and to our local health agencies, and also uh, for good reason to CDC, uh, which. Really, whenever you hear any advice from anyone about what you should do in the case of the coronavirus, my advice is do not listen to the politicians, whether it be Andy Young or the president, but go to the CDC website because they're the ones who can give the accurate well, information. Well, actually, I'm not sure if you've all seen this yet, but Facebook has taken an – or is it Twitter? I'm sorry. I can't – I'll check it out. One of them has now – because there's been so much false information put out on social media, so many rumors spread, now when you search coronavirus, it immediately pops up the CDC's official coronavirus website, which is a proactive and rather responsible move for social media, Patricia. I've, I – I know that Twitter has taken some steps to do yeah. that. They tend to be more aggressive in yeah. terms of false information. Um, I think there are two sets of problems that all governments are dealing with right now is the actual physical spread of this virus that little is known and the um, the accompanying uh, semi-panic that could set in if it starts to act in ways that people don't expect. And so we do see um, in the state capitol, but especially in Congress, um, conversations starting, and let me say solely in Congress, I've not heard this in Atlanta, um, solely in Congress talks about any um, potential stimulus package coming out, what happens if people stop flying entirely. There are a lot of contingency, contingency plans in place to deal both with the physical piece of this and also with the mental, emotional piece of it. The conversations that I'm having with my colleagues are, are 90 percent, 95 percent about the economy. It's inexplicable, I think, in the experts' view, but certainly in my far less educated view, what the stock market is doing. But the loss, the dramatic losses, and the somewhat spiky coming back is inexplicable. When you start talking about canceling conferences, when you start talking about eliminating all flying to Italy, just as an example, and you start speculating about the inability to carry the forth with the Olympics in Japan, you're talking about international economic impacts. The stock market is more or less more often about confidence than anything else, and there's a dramatic lack of confidence right now in what the economy is going to do. I want to make sure that I understand and that our listeners understand how you're framing that. Are you suggesting that these dramatic steps are excessive or are you saying that that, that the, the stock market is responding to what appears to be some sound measures being taken? Um, I don't know that I can say that, okay. answer that intelligently, but clearly the interruption of the supply Shame. system yeah. uh, internationally uh, through our Georgia ports is something we can examine and measure. If nothing is leaving China with goods, and the China boat that have already left China are being called back. That has measurable economic oh, sure. impacts. 
but huge lack of confidence and speculation about an economic downturn. Yeah, I, I think what we're we're going to someday look back at this, and we're going to note that this is the this this is the first pandemic in kind of a, an era of social media misinformation, and that's that's a that is, that is a we 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 call that going viral. There's a, there's a bit of irony in that, I think. But it's, but it's also true that people in my conversations, and the CDC is in my district. It's always been in my district. And my CDC constituents are, in my view, the smartest of any of all the federal agency employments. Yeah. They're, they're PhDs. They're international people. They're world health experts, true experts. They're also pretty apolitical. They're data-driven people, data-driven people. And we simply don't know anything true, truthful, about what the numbers are in China, and we are beginning to see some truth in other counties, other countries. Well, to sort of build on that, because uh, Mayor Margaret is absolutely right, to, to give you one idea, uh, you know, the World Health Organization came out and was discussing the potential death uh, rate uh, as a result of this this epidemic, and they set it at, at some like 3.8%. But, but it was set based on two very questionable variables. First was the, the number of people who've been infected so far, which worldwide they're estimating at 98,000. But the problem is you're getting those numbers Tested, out of some yeah. countries China. in which you got – they're highly questionable in terms of their accuracy of what they do and also based on the death rate so far, which is also highly questionable. That figure may very well go up, could very well go down dramatically. We do know from health experts who are actually on the front lines dealing with the issue – particularly with folks who are elderly, folks who have underlying uh, con medical conditions, that it is a very dangerous illness. Uh, but in terms of the actual numbers, in terms of percentages, it's, it's a scientific wild you-know-what. Um, I will say, having covered the Capitol, I have been very impressed by the governor's um, uh, response to this so far. He's been very proactive in his planning and uh, very proactive also in his, um, I think, in the amount of information that he can share. I feel like in the press corps, we feel like we're getting, um, uh, if not regular information, we're getting uh, consistent information. Uh, he, in his comments, is uh, very measured. His task, I've spoken with a number of members of the task force that he's appointed. The schools are planning. The health department is planning. Um, I think planning is going to be a huge piece of this because we don't know what's going to happen. And I think at the state capitol, the governor has managed to put, to the extent that's possible, he has put in place a system that creates more confidence rather than less confidence in terms of the state's ability and preparations well, to deal with this. He's also very fortunate that he has a public... Kathleen Toomey. Yeah, Kathleen yes. Toomey, his public health director, who is acknowledged to be one of the best in the country. International right? expert yeah. with a wide variety of mm -hmm. professional experiences. I've been impressed. By the way, we're working... I, I think uh, that uh, Dr. Toomey will be with us at some point next week to talk with us, but go ahead. We know Dr. Toomey in various professional roles. She's always been a, a wonderful professional. I've been impressed uh, myself with how Governor Kemp has handled this. And I'm remembering that he was also very proactive on the threatened hurricane on the coast. He was visible. He was out front. Uh, here, with a professional task force around him, he's doing a lot of media. I don't think I remember either Sonny Perdue or Nathan Deal doing a live interview with anchors of Channel 2 on the 6 o'clock news at the anchor table. He even came on Political Rewind this week. I was, he did. We were thrilled to have him, but this isn't, I don't think, his favorite venue, but we sure loved having him on. Uh, you know, Bill, I had, um, I had a, an interesting conversation with Tom Price, the former head of the, yeah. the, the, uh, of, uh, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, it's, it's, it'll be in the Sunday column. But, but, I mean, he was very explicit about making the point that uh, he, he did not use the phrase White House. But what he said was rely on the science and rely on these institutions that we have built up across the country for the last 120 years. I mean, his point was public health uh, and epidem epidemics is what we do best in the United States, uh, uh, the, 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 whether, it, whether it goes to, to, 
to uh, uh, dis waste disposal or, or mass epidemics. We're very familiar with this. This is not a new game for us. Well, you lead me into exactly the conversation that really was what it, uh, 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 was on my mind as we were starting the show today, at, and that is that President Trump was due in Atlanta this afternoon to visit CDC. Presumably, he was there to showcase the administration's uh, response to coronavirus. Uh, he's now canceled that trip. He was gonna, this was going to be a twofer for the president. He was going to be in Tennessee, where he certainly would, will be welcomed by people who suffered enormously as a result of the horrific uh, tornadoes that moved through uh, the state. Um, and then he was going to be at CDC in Atlanta. And, and it, it, they said at the last minute, early hours this morning, Patricia, you were the first one that I'm aware of who got the news that they had canceled that visit. They said that CDC is well-prepared and has been out front, and all the president would do essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, is get in their way. And I think that's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he might have his own reasons for, I'm sure he has his own reasons for doing this. I mean, there are half a dozen. Um, but I do think that the information that the president has been putting forward has uh, just not been accurate yeah. and not been helpful. And um, the CDC is putting out information, and it does take all of your resources to deal with a presidential visit. Um, and so I am sure we will continue to hear from the president, but this missed visit, um, he's also going to Tennessee where more people have died in yeah. the tornadoes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's that's where the disconnect comes in here. Okay, you, you are dealing with two disasters. You go to, to, to uh, you decline to go to the office space where things are probably going to be in fairly good control. And you go to the to to the tornado site instead, where things are not going to be in control. I, I, it's that's a that's a little disingenuous. Well, I wondered. So my mind. Here's, well, I'm, here's, I'm not so sure if it's disingenuous. I mean, to be honest with you, I think having a president or, or a governor, for that matter, going to a disaster site is is a sign of of caring and 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 trying to provide un, un, comfort. Uh, undoubtedly. And and so I I do think that it was, it's good for him to go there. I think that uh, the fact that uh, he's put uh, the vice president in charge uh, of the task force and that he's been to the CDC already and and the CDC's already doing good work and hopefully that'll be highlighted more and more. Edward, but so let me ask you, start with you and then let everybody else yeah. take a chance, a shot at this. Um, I was wondering what when this visit was still on as of last night, you've got, as we've all agreed, a governor who has really been proactive, been very honest in giving us accurate information about uh, the virus, the fact, jumped on the fact that we had two cases, had a 10 p.m. news conference at the beginning of the week to make sure the public learned it from him, not secondhand. And he's going to stand next to the president of the United States, who as recently as two nights ago was on Sean Hannity saying, well, I think the World Health Organization's uh, percentage of fatalities, 3.4 percent, is a false number. It's just my hunch. Uh, but based on a lot of conversations with a lot of people that do this, because a lot of people will have this, it's very mild. Thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that get better just by, you know, sitting around and even going to work. Some of them go to work, but they get better. I mean, Patricia, what would that have looked like the governor standing next to the president when the president has been making these specious comments. It would have been <laughs> horrible. And it's, you know, he, there was uh, an event with members of Congress where uh, the head of uh, where Dr. Anthony Fauci was asked not to speak to some of the members of Congress and answer questions because there's no such thing as a hunch <laughs> that's reliable in a public health crisis. And so, you know, the president does what he does. It is not helpful in a situation like this. And I think, honestly, the less said, the better, if it's not accurate. Well, that's, well, the, that, that, that's the bottom line. Uh, you know, Lindsey Graham even came out uh, earlier this week and said, uh, if you're going to report things, make sure the science uh, behind you uh, is correct. And so, you know, I think what, what Jim was talking about with what Tom Price said and and what Lindsey Graham has said and, and, and more importantly, what's coming out of the CDC, what's coming out of our health departments, that's the information that folks should be relying upon. So, you know, Mary Margaret, this goes to what you started off uh, the conversation with, which was this concern that people are so confused about what to believe 
um, that perhaps uh, when we hear about schools closing, we, we hear about uh, airlines losing all their business, you're getting one message from the president. You're getting another message from CDC. Uh, yesterday, the head of the World Health Organization criticized leaders across the globe, saying they're they're not dealing with this accurately. Certainly, the president was one of the people he was talking about. Assuming that the president listens to political advice from anybody else, there is absolutely no upside politically for him to standing next to these scientists at CDC. It's not going to go well. And if he's listened to political advice, he would have declined to go and focus on a more compassionate optic of going to Tennessee. I personally think it's going to he's going to play golf. <laughs> Mary yes. Margaret, the cynic, Mary Margaret Oliver. The weather is nice. A um, few weekends left at Mar-a-Lago, but there's no political upside for the president to go there. He's not going to stay on message. Uh, the scientists are not going to look like him as they're talking with him. Uh, I was surprised he intended to go from the get-go. All right. Well, Jim, let's finish off this part of the conversation by saying this truth that we know about the president deciding not to visit. There are thousands, if not tens of thousands, of Atlanta commuters who are thrilled that President Trump will not be coming to Atlanta at like 3 o'clock this afternoon. Exactly. Uh, yeah, we will be able to get home. Right. Thank you, Mr. President. All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, we have a lot more to talk about on Political Rewind. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Edward Lindsay, during the break, you mentioned something that we probably should at least spend a moment on. An institution to people certainly in Atlanta and the metro Atlanta region is at long last, after an extraordinary career, going into retirement. Yes, Sam Massell is accepting early retirement. Uh, <laughs> at age 92. At age 92. He has been, uh, you know, in addition to his elected service as the mayor of Atlanta. He's been the head of the Buckhead Coalition, I believe, since its creation in yep. 1988 yep. uh, and has done a fabulous uh, job uh, tutoring a lot of people who've come through uh, and gone up the political process, including me. Uh, I remember when I first ran for the state house, uh, a mandatory stop uh, was to sit down with Sam Massell and discuss uh, where uh, the state of our uh, metro Atlanta was and where he thought it should go in the future, and, uh, and the wisest thing that I ever did was follow his advice. Uh, he has uh, done enormous uh, things for my particular community of Buckhead, mm -hmm. and I just want to take a moment and congratulate the mayor of Buckhead for his many years of service He's, he's been community. a remarkable force, and I think we all have dealt with him in one way or another, I've known him for many, many years. I thought, Jim, it was funny. I read a, a story, I guess it was in the AJC, that he and his wife are going to take a vacation to some, I don't remember exactly where, but they're going off to an island somewhere, a tropical island, and he said... It'll be nice, but it won't It'll be, be Buckhead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and, and I, we, we shouldn't leave this, but just without noting just the tremendous historical role yeah, he played absolutely. in the city of Atlanta. He was kind of the hinge as the door swung from uh, Ivan Allen and white rule of Atlanta to Maynard right. Jackson and African-American rule. Absolutely. Very long public service career. I had his off also. All right, maybe we can get him. When he comes back from his island vacation, <laughs> we should probably get him in here and do a show with him. I strongly recommend it because you will enjoy it. Yeah. The stories yeah. he can tell. Absolutely. Um, let me, let's talk a little bit, Patricia. Um, by now, Super Tuesday is four days in the past. Uh, one of the most extraordinary nights I think anyone has ever seen in American politics, the Joe Biden sweep across most of the country. Um, and it, it's I think it's a fascinating political story in general, the resurrection of Joe Biden. But, but it also has an impact on what Georgians are going to see happening here in just a couple of weeks. Absolutely. Well, 
Mike Bloomberg was hard at work opening yeah. 10 field offices, yeah. <laughs> and I assume that office space is only paid through the month, I would assume. Um, but yeah, it was... Uh, I ha- I have a hard time knowing if it was Joe Biden's resurrection or else his premature obituary yeah. by the national media, because so much of the negative um, press that he was getting, other than his, you know, ho-hum performances and debates, was, uh, you know, his sort of like falling poll numbers in Iowa and New Hampshire. But those are not electorates that look like the Democratic Party. Those are not the people who are going to elect the next nominee of this party um, because it is just there's such a lack of diversity in those two early states. Mm -hmm. And so once the campaign came to a part of the country that looks like the party, those people support. They know Joe Biden. They trust him and support him. Um, And so I think that's what came through. I was amazed at how swiftly um, the other candidates got out and backed him as an ensemble in a way that was so powerful, it created a ton of momentum. And I think even in their own comments, especially Pete Buttigieg's comments about Joe Biden, I I think they also know him and trust him as well. Um, I think there is also deep anxiety about what it looks like as a candidate on the bottom of the ticket in a state like Georgia or North Carolina, Virginia, uh, Arizona, if the top of the ticket is Bernie Sanders. Well, I, you, you, there are a couple of points that you made there that I want to follow up on. One of them, Mary Margaret, is, as Patricia points out, we saw other presidential candidates fall on their own swords to, to give Biden their support, to let him move forward. Um, but you also have the same thing among your colleagues in the Democratic Party here in Georgia. Um, you had uh, Michael Thurman, who just last week finally made his official endorsement of, of uh, Bloomberg. Uh, uh, Jen Jordan was a Bloomberg supporter and immediately said in the middle of the week, I'm going to I will shift my allegiance to Joe Biden. Thurman said something I thought was interesting, which is, I mean, he clearly is going to make a different a move in a different direction. But he also gave Bi- um, Bloomberg a lot of credit for the fact that he intends to stay in this effort as an as a bystander with millions of dollars to spend to help Democrats win. I think Bloomberg's role in this is very interesting. In this very unusual uh, set of elections we've had, his commitment, the first sentence out of his excellent political ads, we are here to defeat Donald Trump, and that is his mission. And his role at needling Donald Trump as a New Yorker has been incredibly valuable. It's also the very unique, never happened before, a candidate with truly unlimited personal money. There is nothing he is not willing to spend, which ups the game of the consultants, ups the game of the TV uh, presentations, ups the game for Biden. I was very thrilled that Biden was so rewarded, what I think rewarded for a lifetime of decency in politics. He was rewarded as a lifetime uh, contributor uh, to lots of different people. Uh, Calvin Smyre and I were just absolute laughing out loud. He won Texas without going there. But, but, of course, there are people who are going to say, you talk about his life of decency. We know about the personal side of Joe Biden. But clearly there are issues that you can run against with Joe Biden in the Democratic – Bernie Sanders can run – support for the Iraq war, um, the crime the crime bill, which, um, it, interestingly, African-Americans have – clearly forgiven him for, despite their concerns about it back when he was uh, sponsoring that measure. President Clinton and the crime bills and Zell Miller and the crime bills were reflective of an era of fear of crime. And I think that when you combine his public service and you contrast it, contrast it to my personal view, a total lack of decency from Donald Mm. Trump. I think that surge of we need decent people in politics, with we need people who care about us, compared to Donald Trump was an enormous gift to us, uh, Democrats, and an enormous gift to us as Americans. Edward, and then uh, Jim. Well, well uh, a couple of quick points. Number one, uh, you know, Mayor Bloomberg has discovered that it's not an easy jump from being a behind-the-scenes power broker to a candidate. Uh, he made an enormous uh, difference in the uh, 2018 election with the money that he poured in, not only into Virginia, which he's credited with helping to flip uh, the legislature, but also here in Georgia, mm-hmm. he was an enormous uh, backer, a financial backer of uh, Lucy McBath. Lucy McBath. 
Uh, so he's he's had a, a big influence, and he, I expect that he would, and Republicans are going to need to respond to that. It is interesting that uh, after all of the culling out that has taken place, and you know, keep in mind, Iowa and New Hampshire have never been good bellwethers on who's going to get elected, but they have been good over the years in culling the field. But at the end of the day, the Democrats have gone to what I would call their comfort food. They've gone uh, <laughs> to, on the left. Uh, they have gone to Bernie Sanders, whom they've got to know in the 2016 election and rejected the more newcomer uh, progressive Elizabeth Warren. And in the middle, uh, they've gone to their comfort food of Joe Biden uh, and and not chosen some of the more up and coming, more moderate people running. The question that I have uh, to uh, Mary Margaret and to the others is, is this really the right strategy for Democrats? Because if you look back over the last 50 years, the folks that have taken out incumbent presidents have not been the safe choice. Jimmy Carter was a dark horse in 76. Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan was uh, the most conservative uh, Republican candidate running in the primaries in 1980. Bill Clinton was not the safe choice in 92. Uh, but, but all the way down George, the line, George H.W. Bush was. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. but but H.W. Bush, but he was he wasn't trying to take an incumbent out. Uh, my point being is that if you're going to take an incumbent out, a lot of times rather than going with the safe choice, the Walter Mondales, the Bob Doles, the John Kerrys, uh, the Mitt Romneys, those usually have fallen by the wayside historically. It's the it's the it's the change agent that has been. Yeah, you know, Jim, I hear yes, this, but. Tom Sawyer. You know, <laughs> you pay, you know, it's so much fun painting this fence. Republican Edward yeah. Lindsay, sort of subtly saying Bernie Sanders would be the guy. No, I'm not. not but, <laughs> okay. well, Bernie may be in the in the in no, the McGovern okay, category yeah, so far. Right, I'm just simply right. saying that they, that the Dems have gone to two safe choices. Okay. Okay. For, you, for, first of all, I would say the climate, uh, the the climate yeah. of this is climate. very, very different. You're not going okay. from a a a a, a, a George H. W. Bush to a Bill Clinton out of a out of a a need to lessen the risk that the White House is posing to yeah. the federal government. That and that's what that's 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 the current Democratic thinking right you, now. Your point is well taken. This the, is a historical time. Yes, Patricia, yes. jump in here. Yeah, I, when you mentioned the last 50 years, it's not the last 50 years. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think uh, voters have wanted change, change, change. Uh, the voters I talk to want normal. Yeah. Exactly. And they don't see it. And they want decency. They want to wake up in the morning and not be afraid to look at their phones right now. Yeah, this, the, is, this the is a centrist uprising is what this is. Yeah. The danger of Donald Trump. The danger of, for our status internationally, the danger that he poses is is saying that the coronavirus is a hunch that we don't really people. It's not really serious. That's a dangerous thing for him to say, and he does something like that every week. Compared to uh, Joe Biden, who is a responsible public service. The other point about what helped Joe Biden this week, in addition to the dangerousness of our current presence, in my view is the dangerousness of Bernie Sanders being the nominee. I think that the fearfulness that I, as a Democrat, for all our down ballot, for Lucy McBath, yes. uh, was so serious that I think a revolt of the centrist, a revolt of the Democrat folks who are have one goal. We have one goal. It's not Medicare for all. It's not eliminating college. It's not it, one goal, defeat Donald Trump. What's interesting, Bill, about this is that, of course, uh, on, on March 24th, there will be a GOP presidential primary in Georgia. Big time. And, and, and of course, Donald Trump was declared the winner of that back in December. Yeah, he's the only, he's he's the only, the only candidate on the ballot. But as of Saturday, as the Georgia Democratic presidential primary is pretty much over. At this point, because it's going to it's uh, I think it was what, 72, 28, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders in 2016. You're going to see a repeat of that now, I think. Probably here in Georgia. Um, let me Patricia, here's another interesting thing about what happened this week, I think, compared to what happened to Republicans in 2016. It, as we've already said, we had this remarkable uh, event in San Antonio the night before Super Tuesday in which uh, Buttigieg. And Amy Klobuchar both appeared at a Biden rally, said he's the guy. We don't have a path to the nomination. We fully support him. 
it's interesting to think about that compared to 2016 when Trump was the outlier, who all of those other candidates certainly uh, were afraid of. That didn't happen. Marco Rubio, uh, Jeb Bush, none of them were willing to sort of give up their own ambitions to try to defeat Donald Trump. And I think they literally just couldn't get on board with him um, on principle. And but many my of them point is they, they could have done to 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 Trump what these two did. They could have decided one of them was the path forward and the others could have dropped out and supported that alternative to Trump. And, and there was an attempt like that. I think there yeah. was a, a Ted Cruz, yeah. Marco Rubio. They, 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 there was, but it was also an open year. You didn't have a situation where, I, and I do agree with with, with many of y'all who said that the one thing the Democrats are absolutely united on is defeating Donald Trump. Uh, and, and you didn't have that uh, yeah. universal one theme uh, in the 16 election that you've got well, on the Republican side that you've got on the Democratic side. Patricia. And the Republican voters wanted Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, the leaders might not have wanted him, but the voters yeah. wanted All right. him. It I, was fair clear. Enough. The fair voters enough. so far at this point want Joe Biden. Fair enough. I want to ask, uh, I want you two particularly, Patricia and Mary Margaret, to comment on this. I want to read the first two, read the first two graphs of um, a front page story in the Washington Post today. Elizabeth Warren attracted big crowds. She won rave reviews in nearly every debate. Her organization was second to none. She developed developed plans, a strategy, and a message. Yet when voting started, she not only lost, she lost by a lot. Now, as Warren, who ended her presidential campaign Thursday, decides whether to endorse either of the two male candidates remaining, her supporters are left to contemplate a factor that many believe contributed significantly to her loss. She's a female. And the byline on that story is Annie Linsky and Amy B. Wang. How much do you believe uh, Elizabeth Warren's fall from being the front runner months ago to being out of the race, winning no states at all, uh, has to do with gender? A lot. Of course, I see it personally. Uh, Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, and Elizabeth Warren were excellent candidates. Uh, successful, long resumes, public service, did extremely well in the public. Uh, the question that keeps being asked, not by me, but by constant head talking heads and all, people on the street, is can a woman win? That question being raised every single day is defeating to women candidates. We cannot accept we being society, we perhaps being a, what is referred to as the white male patriarchy, we cannot accept that a woman can win. I think gender had a tremendous amount of influence in, in the defeat of three excellent women candidates, Elizabeth Warren being, at a time, a very strong front runner. Patricia, what's your take on that? I think um, uh, Elizabeth Warren suffered from some institutional disadvantages. Mm. Um, one is that both of the other men have run for president before and some, in some cases multiple times had national networks. Um, female candidates uh, do not have the um, institutional financial resources that men tend to have. Um, and to um, uh, uh, Mary Margaret's point, Voters, especially this cycle, want somebody to beat Donald Trump. If there is a risk that a woman couldn't do that, no matter who the woman is, no matter how qualified, no matter how many plans, the woman's not going to get elected because a woman's never been elected. So pr prove to me that it'll happen, and I believe it will. I do also think she ran into some major headwinds when she, because she is so dedicated to specificity in her yeah. plans, <laughs> when she started talking about what, how she would pay for her Medicare for all, Taxes would go up, and she admitted it, unlike Bernie Sanders, who sort of tends to just gloss over all the details in a way that I think is um, disingenuous. I, I think she had a lot of problems. One of them is being a woman. Edward, uh, give you a chance yeah, well, here, but let me let me uh, tell you that later in the in the op-ed section of that same uh, today's edition of the Washington Post, Megan McArdle says, you may call me a gender traitor, but I think there are other reasons Elizabeth Warren lost. She says... I think sexism toward women is real and toxic, but she also says, let's consider the other reasons voters might have preferred someone else, such as the fact that for all her protestations of being a capitalist to the bone, she was well to the left of most of the voters who opted for Joe Biden. Well, first <clears throat> off, as the, as the husband and, and brother of three very accomplished professional mm -hmm. women, I have seen them have to break down barriers that 
that men don't have to deal with. And and so I'm not going to diminish that that role or that concern in society. But there were other concerns as well with Elizabeth Warren. And the major one was that she was trying to fill the lane that was already uh, possessed by by Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. And and yes, she did spike last fall. But keep in mind, she spiked last fall when there was questions about uh, Senator Sanders health right after his heart attack. Once he came back strong, that, you know, he was given back that that progressive lane and that she's had to spend most of her time trying to edge her way into that progressive lane and push him out. And and given the 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 intensity of the supporters that that are behind Bernie Sanders, she just wasn't able to do that. She is a very accomplished woman uh, and, and a very strong advocate for progressive values. Uh, but she just couldn't break through, given that Bernie Sanders was already in that. One line. more time, one more time. Bernie Sanders is kind of the bad guy to me, yeah. <laughs> and uh, her success, of course, will continue in her public service. Well, but, but, but let's be careful. I mean, we have there are passionate there are listeners to the show who are passionate supporters of Bernie Sanders, who believe his radical change is exactly what will attract voters and, in fact, allow him to become president. Right, which which we have not seen right. uh, in 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 the primary so far. Uh, Mary Margaret, you ran for statewide for lieutenant governor yeah. in what year? In 88? Nine, 98. And 98? no woman has ever won a Democratic race in Georgia. I'm going to ex- give the exception of Ka- a Kathy. statewide race. Statewide race. Yeah. Kathy Cox was appointed to Secretary of right. State and then had basically no opponent. She had an aide of Newt Gingrich who weighed $19,000 a year. No woman has ever won a Democratic statewide race. I, I mean, Stacey Abrams came very, very, very close. close. Kathy so, so Cox I, I, came very – I came I, very close. So I guess my, my question is, has the climate changed be, uh, since, since you ran statewide? Great question, Jim. Well, Kelly Leffler certainly hopes it has. I said Democrat. Okay. The Republican women have succeeded because they've had the establishment – money, 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 and the establishment Republican stamp of you're okay. Democratic women have not succeeded in Georgia on a statewide basis. And I want to give credit to Kathy Cox, but I think she might agree with me that running as an incumbent against an aide to a congressman who ha- who spent $14,000 or whatever he spent on his campaign was not a true opponent. Right. I got to get to another break. Um, we've got a, a, a couple of really interesting state stories I'd love to get to when we come back. Uh, you're listening to Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. A couple of stories we want to update you on. Uh, first of all, uh, the president has signed the uh, $8 billion-plus emergency relief bill uh, on coronavirus. So eventually, Georgia and all the other states will be getting uh, millions of dollars uh, in resources to uh, deal with the disease. Second, um, we've been sitting on this waiting for some official confirmation and finally have it from the governor's office. Um, the Department of Public Health is awaiting a CDC confirmation of a, a positive test that a patient in Georgia, in Floyd County in Georgia, uh, may have coronavirus. So we'll update that as information becomes available on, on, on that as well. And finally, um, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that I knew one of the social media platforms was redirecting people away from all the rumor sites about coronavirus. Uh, Sam Bermestaz uh, told me, yes, it was in fact Twitter that is sending people keeping them away from the rumors, sending them directly to CDC. And that's a great public service. Yeah. Part. Yes. All right. Jim Galloway, I, I'm going to ask you to explain this uh, a little bit better. And I know everybody else in the, at the table knows more, probably more about this than I do. But we have an interesting situation developing in what was supposed to be a race for a seat on the Georgia Supreme Court. Uh, Justice Keith Blackwell uh, announced that he was going to step down and immediately uh, two people who've been, uh, uh, you know, political adversaries uh, decided to jump into the race. John Barrow, the former Democratic member of Congress, and state representative, former state representative Beth Beskin, a Republican. They were all set to jump into this race. This has become very complicated, and it's a very important story about executive power. What's happening? It is. It is. And, and, and the date that Blackwell gave for his uh, uh, resignation is important. It's November 18th. And, of course, we have an election on November 3rd. 
And what happened was you had both John Barrow and Beth Beskin go to the state capitol to qualify for that for that race. This week was qualifying. Exactly. And they were rejected by Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger on on the on the notion that that uh, Brian Kemp intended to appoint a replacement. See, see, Blackwell's term does not end until the end of the year. Uh, and and uh, if by resigning on November 18th, he leaves uh, technically a vacant seat that the governor can then fill. And then that race shifts two years. It, it shifts two years into, into, into Until there will be an election for that. Right, see? yes. Edward, if, the, if, both, if, if Blackwell were to step down, announce his resignation as of next month, there would be an election. Well, no, because no, we still haven't had qualified. I, I was simply going to add just a, a little bit of uh, background for, for our listeners here is that there's an interesting tradition that we've had in this state going back decades uh, in which uh, if a judge resigns before the end of his term, uh, the governor gets to make an appointment and then traditionally it's, there's, a, there's usually a, a one or two year time period before that person has to stand for election for the first time. And the, 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 the thought, I, I guess, from Justice Blackwell was if I resign before my term runs out in January, that, that gives the governor the opportunity to make an appointment, and then that election won't take place until 2022. It's an interesting legal question, uh, and like, a, like, you, like Jim pointed out, <laughs> you have both a Republican and a Democrat uh, raising it. And uh, as a good lawyer, I look forward to seeing what the answer is by the by the court. Mary Margaret, they're going to go to court. They're going to go. One. They've already filed their lawsuit. Yeah. Beth Beskin has. I don't know if John Barrow's filed too. I believe. Yeah, he yeah. has. I think they're right. I don't think that just the pronouncement by Justice Blackwell that he might he was going to resign November eighteenth eliminates an opportunity for somebody to run for an office. It's a very interesting legal issue. I don't know how the court uh, And let me make it. a correction. The, 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 the judicial race would be would be with the primary date in May. Yes. Am I right? Yes. That's yeah, right. that's right. Yes. So 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 he is making so it's it's actually it's it's a little bit more disparate. I mean his his resignation is is com, is coming you know would be coming 4 to 5 months after this election is done. Yeah, and Patricia yeah. But let, before let, the end of his his term. Right. Patricia less less People think we're like getting into the weeds on some obscure legal question. Too late. The real <laughs> we're, we're in the weeds. No, seriously, <laughs> we're not because the overriding question here is the power of the executive to be able to. I, I want to be careful about my language. Uh, manipulate may be too strong, but to be able to help make choices to shape, <laughs> that to shape. give yes. him the opportunity to put somebody he wants on the bench. Well, and Governor Kemp has been extremely strategic in his appointments, yeah. I have to say, with Kelly Leffler, a woman, with John King, a Latino. He has made some very strategic choices in who he has chosen to put forward as the face of his team. Um, to the extent that he can make choices and it's legal, he will absolutely do that. I'm sure he will fight, you know, he will be happy to defend it vigorously in the courts. Um, but I think he sees these as big opportunities that he'll take until someone tells him not to. And well, in I, the case I'm, of Justice Benham's seat, which is also now opened up, it's interesting that the JNC uh, shortlist to the governor yeah. are, are four women. And, and I did have an opportunity to speak with the chairman of the JNC about it. And, the Judicial and Nominating, nominating and, Committee. And, and judicial Nominating Committee. Thank you. And, and, and what he reported to me, and I found this fascinating, is, yes, we came up with, with – and it ended up with four women. But it wasn't until the end of the meeting when someone suddenly realized, wait a minute, we, our four choices are women. In other words, they picked what they believe to be the four best people. And they just happened to be. There was a female. lot of negotiation, uh, Governor Kemp, uh, leadership to in relation to Justice Benham's seat, and I won't go further into those weeds. Yeah. But what's interesting, I'm just curious, and I'll never know really the answer to this. Did they really brief this issue before they made this decision to ig not accept? Uh, Qualifying fees from Beth Baskin and or yeah, you, as a brief, total... by brief you mean run it by the lawyers, <laughs> run, it by the, <laughs> run it by the attorney general. <laughs> All right. Did anybody anticipate this? Is yeah. my question. I, I want to. I, I, 
want to change subjects real quickly while we have you here. Coal ash has been one of your biggest causes during this session of the General Assembly. Um, an environmental group has now filed a lawsuit uh, challenging the Public Service Commission's uh, a decision that ratepayers will pay for the disposal of coal ash that George Power has to undertake. It, it's not clear to me. I, I assume the suit deals to some extent with the conditions under which they are going to dispose of the coal ash, your concern being unlined pools, pits, whatever. Uh, nationally, there are hundreds of coal fire plants that are closing, which means hundreds of different engineering tasks to clean up the coal ash residue. Uh, that's being handled more appropriately, in my view, in states like Indiana and North Carolina, where the closing processes are really far more protective of our water sources, aquifer sources, than we are in Georgia. The plan that Georgia Power put forward as a ratepayer plan to the Public Service Commission allows them to put coal ash residue, which is toxic, I don't think that's disputed, into an unlined pit. Um, The tension around this issue is very interesting. Jim Galloway wrote a very good column, interesting column, about the Republican constituencies, specifically around the small town of Juliet, which borders Plant Shear, the largest coal fire plant in northern America, with the largest coal ash pond, 540-acre pond that sits in the aquifer in an unlined. These citizens want relief yep. from their political leaders, and they're not getting Patricia, it. Patricia, I saw in Lawmakers, I guess last week, you did an interview with GPB Radio's Grant Blankenship about this. He'd been following the Juliet families and their concerns. I mean, this has been going on for more than a decade yeah. for these families. Um, if anybody saw the movie Aaron Brockovich, we're talking about a number of the same chemicals. Um, these families have lost spouses to cancer. I talked to a man whose dog died of cancer. They have to have, they drink only bottled water. You know, we think about it, something like that's happening in Flint, Michigan. It doesn't happen in Georgia. It's happening an hour away from Atlanta. Um, as Mayor Margaret said, Republican constituencies, there's a there's another environmental, uh, I think, danger dangerous situation happening in other areas with the release of ethylene oxide. Um, a bill has moved through committee uh, now to deal with ethylene oxide emissions. But these are, you know, these are the realities coming back to, to, um, to, you know, maybe haunt some decisions that have been made in the past and that need to be addressed very soon because uh, Georgians are really suffering in some of these situations. Hey, hey Jim, people can go online. Uh, maybe we can post it. You did a great column about how this is becoming a bipartisan issue, largely, in fact, because of what Mary Margaret and, and Patricia talk about. You're talking these, these are these are Republican areas of the state. Right, right. And 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 one of the more interesting aspects of it is Clay Tippins, the former uh, uh, mm-hmm. candidate, Republican candidate for governor, has a farm out that, out that way in Monroe County. And he's the one that's been kind of uh, trying to draw Governor Kemp in to, uh, to, uh, with some success, I think. Right, let me, we, let me, we got about a minute left, Edward. Let me say, uh, I personally uh, was, uh, I don't know if surprised is the word. There's now, the state Senate is now considering a measure to allow, make it legal, to brandish a gun uh, in a dispute, I, you can't – if you point it at the person you're in a dispute with, that's illegal. But you can pull it out of your holster. The, and wave your, it around? And, and wave it around. What the heck is that about, Edward? Not to sound too biased on the subject. The problem is any time that you get into the legislation – <laughs> and in which something is so very fact specific. Uh, and the fact of the matter is the case came out of a situation where apparently two people are in a dispute. They're having an argument and one guy pulls back his jacket and shows the other guy his gun. Um, I think the legislator ought to stay out of those kind of fact-based uh, uh, disputes and just let the, let juries right. decide if that's We are out assault. of time. I will be more than glad, by the way, to give the uh, sponsors of that bill, the supporters of it, a chance to talk about it on Political Rewind, but we're out of time. You don't oh, get— Oh, I really wanted to talk about that. I'm sorry. We're completely out of time. Stay tuned. Uh, I think my pause We're going to wait. You know, there's been some rumblings that the president may come to Atlanta after all today. We'll all just have to wait and see what the President of the United States is going to do later this afternoon. Thanks for being with us for Political Rewind. We're all out of time. Jim Galloway, I'll see you back here with me on Monday for another edition of the show. Take care, everybody.